Hi, this is John, creator of Tale of the Manticore. I'm proud to announce that this episode marks the two-year anniversary of the show. Hang around after the sign-off for a short message if you're curious to hear a little about what the show has accomplished. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 70 begins with Harl remembering where he has seen the runes on the double doors. There's a similar pair guarding the threshold to the mines of Dwervar. He knows what they are, glyphs of warding, and he's right to leave them alone. Continuing on through the belly of the Egrigen, they come to a staircase that seems to climb up and up forever. No one is prepared for the strange sight that greets them as, exhausted, they enter the chamber at the top. A bas-relief image of a beautiful dwarven girl that comes to life animates before their very eyes and demands a password. Harl makes a wild guess and calls out the dwarven word for work, but he guesses wrong, and this triggers a trap. The floor opens up beneath them and all five companions drop 20 feet to the floor below, where, with the ceiling closing above them, they find themselves in a cell. Badly hurt, they stay put and take some rest and some badly needed healing from Gyrios before Umura magically unlocks the door to their freedom. Unfortunately, that freedom will not be so easily won. On the other side of the door, they find the prison's warden, and it is nothing like any of them has ever seen or even dreamt of before. Harl is forever playing catch-up to his companions, but today he finally gets his turn to shine. That's right, this is a level-up episode for the dwarf. Although Harl's to hit and saving throw target numbers will not be affected, this level up is still an important one. Level 6 brings new, badly needed hit points, and of course the chance for stat score increases. Let's get to rolling. For hit points, a d8. Ah, oh, too bad. Just a 3. Harl will take the minimum, bringing his total maximum up to 39. Well, maybe I'll get lucky with a stat roll. Strength would be nice. A 2. Not so good. Intelligence. Another two. I think I see where this is going. Wisdom. A six. And there I thought the luck well had gone dry. Harl's wisdom goes to a 14. It's no mystery where this change comes from. Harl has finally accepted his fate. Now he knows that his destiny is to face the dragon, not to liberate Dwarvar, as he had previously thought. Let's finish it off. Dexterity. 
A five. Constitution. Yet another two. Charisma. A four. Well, that was not the best level up ever, but it could have been worse. What stings is that dwarves take a giant step forward in power when they reach level seven, but I honestly can't see this season lasting another 14 episodes. I'm sure you can feel it too. We're getting close to the end. Close, but we're not there just yet. Between the Lines The characters are in a prison area. It's not just a single isolated cell. When I was thinking about this part of the Egujin, I knew I wanted to have some kind of warden here, something special, but I wasn't exactly sure what that would be. As usual, my first ideas were a little bland and obvious. I had in mind a stone golem or another living statue, but I didn't want a repeat of encounters we've already seen, and so I rejected those ideas and began a rather long search for something new. Over a few days, I looked through the basic and expert rules, the AD&D Monster Manual 1, and then finally the Monster Manual 2. This is where I finally found the perfect warden. Before choosing the creature I did, I almost went with a water weird. I thought that could be a really interesting opponent, but I also knew that I wanted the warden to speak, so I put the water weird aside and kept looking. Glad I did. The creature I settled on is called a spectator. I'll be using this creature almost exactly as it appears in the Monster Manual 2, with only a couple of small changes. One of those changes is that the spectator is an extra planar being and is bound to the prime material plane for a number of years that is far too short to fit my story. So I'm changing the number of years of service to 1000. That's a nice round number. And really, what's an extra eight centuries between friends? You love history, science fiction, and role-playing. What if there was a podcast that brought all these things you love together in a deep, dramatic experience you'll never forget? Enter the Twilight Histories, a campaign-style storytelling podcast that casts you as the hero. With the Twilight Histories, you will travel to exotic worlds spread across the multiverse. Some are familiar, others are totally exotic. You'll visit Egypt locked in an ice age. You'll follow the Mongols across the American plains. You'll explore a terraformed Venus. Pick your adventure and experience a world out of time. The Twilight Histories was awarded one of Apple's Best of the Year and has been nominated for numerous awards in speculative fiction. Now, step on the platform and let's get you on your way. Let the Twilight Histories podcast carry you to a different world. Chapter 71, Part 1, Day 99, Morning. Party status, Harl, 30 out of 34, having leveled up and been cured for 5 hit points by Gyrios. Gyrios, 29 of 37, having cured himself for 10 hit points. Eridine, 14 out of 20. Umora, 17 out of 25, having been cured for 4 hit points by Gyrios. Daz, 13 of 17. Spells available. Umura has memorized. Hold portal, shield, levitate, lightning bolt, and water breathing. Gyrios has prayed for, bless, resist fire, and striking. The spectator is a very different kind of enemy for a number of reasons. Its objective is not to kill the party members, but to get them back to their cell. This one's sole duty is to guard against prisoners trying to escape. 
That said, it will certainly defend itself, and does have offensive powers, as we will no doubt see very soon. Another thing that makes the spectator different is that all of its attacks are magical in nature. Three of its four small eyes can be used effectively in combat. Each one casts a different spell, and all three can do so at the same time every round. The central eye has a special power too. This is a defensive one. It can reflect spells on the caster. In fact, the example given in the Monster Manual 2 is uncannily relevant to Tale of the Manticore. It says, quote, If a magic user casts a lightning bolt at a spectator, the spectator rolls a saving throw to see if the spell is reflected, end quote. Would Umora use her lightning bolt on this adversary? Honestly, you bet she would. So uh, that ought to be interesting. Poor Umora, she is not having much luck with magic lately. A couple more things we need to know about the spectator before we enter combat. They have a general magic resistance of 5%. Their body has an armor class of 4 and their eyes have an armor class of 7. Every attack against them first rolls to determine which part is targeted. Hits against the eyes do not cause hit point damage. Instead, they destroy the eye. If all the eyes are destroyed, the creature will flee to its home plane. Otherwise, it will not roll a morale check. As a 4 plus 4 hit die creature, this one has... Okay, I've rolled a 14, so that will be bumped up to the minimum of 16 plus 4 is 20 hit points. Entering combat. Round 1. Initiative. Getting the initiative is going to be critical in this fight. The PCs need to knock out some of the spectators' eyes or they won't stand a chance. Here goes. The party. A five, that looks good. The spectator. A two. Now, for reasons that will become clear in a minute, I need to work out the order in which party members act. Let's see, the BX rules give me some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that Harl will not be able to reach the spectator until next round. The good news is that Gyrios will, and that ranged weapons go before spells. Harl charges straight at the spectator, but by the end of his turn, he's still 10 feet away. Daz aims his crossbow and fires, rolling to see if he attacks the body or the eyes. Okay, the dice say he attacks an eye stalk. Daz needs a seven to hit. Natural 20! Daz has taken out one of the eyes with a perfectly aimed shot. Let's see which eye it is. Of the four eyes, three of them have attacks. Daz has taken out the eye that can cast paralysis. Eridine also takes aim and fires, rolling for a target. Wow, incredible good luck. If she hits, she'll hit an eye stock too. She needs a nine or better. A 15, that's good enough. Eridine also takes out an eye. Which one? This couldn't be going better. Eridine takes out the eye that casts cause serious wounds. Her arrow strikes one of the little orbs and it explodes in a shower of vitreous gel with a squelching sound. This has got to be the strongest start to a fight I've played yet. That might be about to change though, because Umora is next. She takes two steps to the side and casts Lightning Bolt. What Umora doesn't know, but we do, is that the spectator's central eye has the ability to reflect spells if the spectator makes a saving throw. The spectator needs a 14 to reflect this spell. Natural 20! Oh no! The spell will be reflected. Now what happens is that Umura needs to make a saving throw. If she fails this, she'll take full damage from her own spell. She needs a 12 or better. 
20. What? Again? What the heck? This little yellow die is legendary. Umora is smart. She can see what's happening a fraction of a second before it actually happens, and she ducks right before the bolt rebounds and smashes against the wall behind her. <laughs> Gyrios will make a normal melee attack with his mace. He'll be attacking the body, and he'll need a 13 to hit. Now he's rolled a 12. That's a miss. <clears throat> now it's the spectator's turn. Because the PCs had such a strong opening round, it can't do very much. Of its three attacks, two of them have already been neutralized. The only weapon it has left is Eyestock number three, which can cast the spell of Suggestion. A beam of grayish light fires out and strikes. It's Umura. Umura will have to save versus spells again, I'm afraid. She needs a 12. I've got a four. She fails. While the others hear the creature's voice in their heads, saying, Umora hears something quite different. She has only just recovered from the shock of having her own spell thrown back at her and possibly being killed by it when her mind is filled with a familiar voice. She finds herself unable to disobey it when it commands her to Go back to your room. Stand in the corner and wait there. Round two. Initiative. The party. A four. The spectator. A three. Harl is now within melee range. If he hits, he will damage the body. Okay, he needs an 11 to hit the body. Now he's rolled a two. He's not even close. Daz is now firing into melee, and on a crit fail, he will hit Gyrios or Harl. He is targeting the body. He needs a 10 to hit. Natural 20! What is going on? He's going to do maximum damage plus a damage die. That's six plus Four is 10 points of damage, and the spectator is instantly reduced to half of its original hit points. Let's see if Eridine can find her mark. Again, shooting into melee is dangerous. She'll be targeting the body as well. She needs a 12 to hit. I've got a 12, that's good enough. But for only one point of damage, the spectator has nine hit points remaining. Umura, with the undeniable voice booming in her head, walks obediently back into their cell to the complete surprise of all of her companions. But they're a little bit too busy to worry about that right now. Gyrios takes his attack, aiming for the body. He needs a 13 or better. A 19 on the die, ah, but for only two points of damage. That's it for the party. Now it's the spectator's turn. It only has one attack, so it will use its third eye stock on its Daz. Daz now needs to make a saving throw. He needs a 9 or better. He's got a 14. The beam strikes the dwarf, and he shakes his head violently, gritting his teeth and stamping his feet as he bucks off the spell. Get out of my damned head! Round 3. Initiative. The party. A 3. The spectator. A 5. That same ice dock now turns and stares directly at Harl. Once again, a thin gray beam fires out of it, striking the dwarf. Just like Daz, Harl needs to make a saving throw, and he also needs a nine or better. He's got an 11. He puts his free hand to his forehead and grimaces, willing himself to resist the voice that tries to destroy his will. Harl now retaliates. He'll be attacking the body. He needs an 11. One, critical fail. 
Okay, not one hand has gone to his forehead, but both. His axe falls to the floor, and Harl collapses to his knees, racked with psychic pain. Daz is up next, once again, firing into melee. He'll be attacking... the body. He needs a 10 or better. He's got a 10. The quarrel does... four points of damage. The missile catches the creature on its side and spins it 360 degrees with the impact. The spectator now has only three hit points left. Can Gyrios finish it off? He'll be attacking... the body, and needs a 13 or better. A 15 is a hit. This could do it. Indeed it does. Four points. Gyrios strikes with a vicious blow. The spectator's main eye ripples, bulges out, and then sucks back into the body. The four eye stalks also retract, and then it begins to spin. Faster and faster. When it's just a blur, there's a sucking and it is gone. This combat is over. Eridine lowers her bow, while Harl and Gyrios catch their breath. Gyrios turns around and sees the scorch marks on the wall where Umura had been. Suddenly concerned, he asks, What happened to Umura? And Harl taps the center of his forehead with a stubby finger. But Gyrios doesn't understand what he means, and is even more confused when he walks back into the cell to find the sorceress standing in a corner with her face to the wall. I know I say this all the time, but that combat did not play out as I'd expected. I must have gone over this scenario in my head for three days before I finally took up the dice and played it for real. In retrospect, I think I was avoiding it. I thought it might go really badly. It's kind of like the encounter with the ghouls all over again, except those dice rolls. I got four natural 20s in three rounds of combat. This was no dice rolling app either. This was good old fashioned real plastic that really couldn't have gone better. Now, you may be wondering a couple of things. Firstly, don't spectators have a mouth they can use to make a bite attack in combat? Yes, by the book they do, but that was one of the changes I made to the monster description. My thinking was, why would a telepathic creature have a mouth? Also, I thought it would bog down combat to include this very low damage attack. Actually, the Monster Manual 2 is inconsistent on how much damage it does, but it's either 1 point or 2 to 5, depending on where you look. That's a throwaway, so I threw it away. Secondly, how did I know that Umura would be targeted by and fail to save for the suggestion spell in the last episode? Simple, I didn't. I just wrote that part of the script for episode 70 after I played out the combat in this one. Can't do that in a regular actual play podcast. I'm telling you, this hybrid storytelling thing is the way to go. Hey y'all, I'm Derek host of the How Not to DM podcast. I hope you'll join me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Each Wednesday, I bring on a new guest to talk about how they got into TTRPGs, some of their biggest mistakes and triumphs from behind the screen, and their awesome projects. There's no right way to listen to How Not to DM. Start from the beginning and binge, or take a look at my guests and pick a few that you recognize or that sound interesting to you. There's something for everyone, whether you're looking to up your skills running games or just want to learn more about what it takes to design, create, and run awesome TTRPGs. Head to my Twitter account at HN2DM to find my link tree, guest announcements, and more. And until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.
there is a world beyond this world. A world of chaos, a world of monsters, a world of the things that go bump in the night. The barrier between the worlds is thin, and sometimes it grows weak enough to let something through. Sometimes this place of chaos invades. That is where we come in. We are the ones who close the door when it has been left open. The Order of Podcasters is a paranormal actual play RPG. Our team of investigators have been tasked with tracking the evil amongst us and sending it back where it belongs. The Order of Podcasters, available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Chapter 71, Part 2 Day 99, Morning Party Status The party status is unchanged, with the exception of Umura, who has used her spell of Lightning Bolt on herself. It took a while before Umura knew where she was, or even who she was for that matter. She had fretted to herself about secret doors and broken bottles for several minutes before snapping out of it and returning to the present. The whole time, Gyrios was a model of patience and support, holding her hands and listening to her babble. When she became aware of her surroundings, the sorceress threw herself into Gyrios' arms, surprising him. He tried to pull back, but she gripped him and then wept into his chest, so he embraced her and squeezed her tightly. After she had dried her tears, they rejoined the others in the main room of the prison. The search of the room had not turned up anything of use, not even a key ring. All they found were three unlocked and identical cells, smaller than their own had been and completely bare. The door with the barred window was not locked. Why would it need to be with such a warden ever present? And it opened into a hallway which ran in both directions. After Gyrios and Umora emerged from their private moment, the companions set out together and began to explore this level of the Agogen, first choosing to follow the tunnel to the right. An hour of careful crawling through a warren of storage rooms, utility rooms, and various other workspaces followed. Eventually they came to a dead end and were forced to backtrack. There was little of anything to be found, as most of the room's contents had been removed during the Agogen's evacuation. What was left was predominantly heavy pieces of furniture, chairs, tables, empty chests, and the like. These were all in a condition that would be expected after almost nine centuries of disuse. Back at the prison, they took the left wing of the tunnel. It brought them to another half-dozen rooms, similarly spartan and devoid of anything useful or interesting, that is, until they found the narrow stairwell that led back to the floor above. They ascended them in the following order. Harl first, then Daz, Umura, Gyrios, and finally Eridine in the rear. The stairs terminated at yet another T-junction. This time they went left first. The tunnel curved like a horn before they came to where it ended in an archway. They could easily see beyond that arch without needing to pass under it. They were back at the room with the trapped floor and the bas-relief of the pretty dwarven girl. Not wanting to take another ride to the floor below, they decided to turn back and took the path to the right of the stairs instead. This tunnel also curved, but in the opposite direction. If a map of the place were to be drawn, it would have looked like an elongated letter S with the magic mouth room on one end and the stairs to the prison area in the middle. 
By the time they approached the far end of the S, they could hear the quiet but familiar sound of rushing water coming from somewhere in the distance. Under that sound was another mechanical sound that they recognized from the day before as a water wheel. They passed through a network of chambers, each attached to the other by ornately carved archways, some showing geometric designs and others showing dwarven faces or detailed motifs of insects or mushrooms. The sound of water grew ever louder as they slowly advanced, occasionally stopping to check for traps or to listen for other noises. As no threats presented themselves, they continued and eventually found themselves in a long tunnel that pitched up in a noticeable incline. By now, the sound of rushing water was loud enough to make quiet conversation difficult. After a time, the tunnel came to an end and spilled them out into a truly gigantic space. None of them, not even the dwarves in the party, had ever seen a natural cavern as large as this one. It must have been three or four hundred feet across and even longer from end to end. The ceiling, smooth and clear of the usual stalactites, was also several hundred feet up. They wouldn't have been able to see any of it by Umura's lamp, bright as it was, except that the room was already filled with light, and it came from everywhere. The cavern ceiling was spangled with glittering crystals, each of which reflected light from below where a vast field heaved with wild mushrooms. They were of all shapes and sizes, filling the cavern floor and even sprouting from the walls. But these mushrooms were not like the ones they had seen in Thangar, nor were they similar to the ones Harl knew from Dwervar. These were bioluminescent. They shone with a milky, multicolored light that diffused like moonlight. The companions entered the cavern as though it was a church, reverently taking in the miraculous sights. Some of the mushrooms were as tall as trees. They were tipped with bulbs and caps and funnels, some wide and drooping or long and tapered, while others were fat, broad, or stubby. It was a luminous forest of lush pastel colors. Harl gazed about incredulous. I never would have imagined. I thought that without the farmers, the mushrooms would all have died. It seems the opposite has happened, offered Umora. Perhaps the mushroom farmers don't really grow the mushrooms so much as they keep their growth in check. That does appear to be the case, said Harl. I'm no agriculturalist. I've always just assumed it was the other way around. Whatever the case, it's beautiful, said Gyrios. Stunning, agreed Umora. Counterpoint to the wild chaos of the mushrooms was the enormous stone water wheel powered by the cascade of water that fell from a wide hole in the ceiling. Compared to the last ones they had seen, both waterfall and wheel were much larger, perhaps twice the size, but they were recessed in the wall and the flow was more controlled. This resulted in less spray and less noise. It is astounding what your people have accomplished, Gyrios remarked, pointing at the giant revolving wheel. It certainly puts the windmills of Camrans to shame. Daz was wearing a look of pride when he glanced over at Gyrios and nodded his agreement. Come on, we must be close to the upper levels by now. Look, there's the exit. Harl pointed diagonally across the cavern where they could see another archway. This one included in its design a pair of nearly identical statues carved in the likeness of dwarven farmers, one male and one female. They were facing each other, slightly bowing and touching foreheads. These constituted the sides and top of the arch. Follow me. They took some time crossing the cavern, partly because there was no clear path through the fungal growth, but also because the scene was so beautiful that they just didn't want to leave. This place rivals the beauty of Raydel's sanctuary, said Umora. Perhaps we should stay here and rest for the day. We could still use more rest, you know. 
I would love to remain here, Humora, but I am loath to delay any longer than is necessary. You saw firsthand the price of delay. If we tarry, the worm may decide to find another city to destroy. I don't want that kind of blood on my hands. Yes, you're right. Well, let's get on with it. The companions passed under the arch, between the pair of bowing statues, and entered a place much different than any they had been in before. Whereas the tunnel so far had been rough cut and unfinished, or else made of flagstone or cobblestone, this place had been built with aesthetics in mind. There was trim on every archway. Pillars had scrollwork on the tops and bottoms. Doors were not merely functional, but decorated, often with imaginatively shaped wrought iron handles, or in some cases, knockers. They were in a complex of guild halls, artisan shops, and other businesses. There were rooms for masons, weavers, cobblers, wheelwrights, locksmiths, clerks, smiths, armorers, moneylenders, artists, and art dealers. They even came across a mint. All of these places had been cleared out, and the only evidence of their former functions were the abandoned tools and trappings of their trades. How many dwarves lived here? asked Gyrios. This place is enormous. I hadn't expected it to be so large, if I'm to be honest, Gyrios, Harl replied. I believe that about 3,000 souls lived here. Maybe more. If Daz had an opinion about the former population of the famous dwarven city, he kept it to himself. As before, the party took frequent stops to check for hazards and to listen for signs of life, but they found none. Walking under yet another archway, Harl suddenly spoke again, startling everyone. Aha! There it is! Those stairs ahead. See how wide they are? See the rows of alcoves and the statuettes within? These are the stairs that lead to the main hall. This is the way to the surface. We'd best get ready for a fight. We'll be leaving this place soon enough, either as champions or as spirits. Meet death, head on. His voice trailed off as they reached the foot of the grand staircase and saw something that snuffed out their hopes just as quickly as they had come to life. From the midpoint up, the grand stairs were filled with rubble, huge slabs of masonry. Many pieces as large as wagons blocked the way. There was no question they would not be able to pass here. Are there any other ways to the surface? asked Gyrios, but he already knew the answer. No, none, said Harl in a deadpan. I have studied Grumblebelly's maps and this is, was, the only way to the surface. My friends, our quest is failed. We have lost. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are now four ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My thanks to everyone who has done any of the above. I'd like to read a review from the Podbean app today. SUPV2HJHVV499 writes, Excellent. So creative and well done. Takes me back to sitting in my room and building charts and probability tables. Ah, the 80s. Thanks very much, SUPV. May I call you SUPV? I certainly spent a lot of time in the 80s doing the exact same thing. My parents probably expected me to grow up to be an actuary. Well, that didn't happen. But something that did happen was I eventually learned that random tables don't interrupt your story, they help build it. 
You just have to decide that everything matters and treat random tables like the puzzle pieces that they are. Thanks for the kind comment and for your support. On the topic of support, back in the role of Daz and supporting the narrative, as always, is Jared Grimm. Find Jared on Twitter at CrazyDrunkenElf. I'm on Twitter too if you care to get in touch. Find me at Manticore Tale. Or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, lately lots of art, character sheets, maps, and other miscellany. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rolls. Has it really been two years since I started this show? Two years? Where did the time go? You know, if there is one word to sum it all up, that word has got to be growth. I've gotten better, if not much faster, at making the show, and just simply knowing what it is. When I started off, I really defined Tale of the Manticore by what it wasn't, but those days are behind me now. Of course, the audience has grown, and I have all of you to thank. To everyone who has supported the show, you've got my gratitude. As you know, I like to keep things short and sweet, so here is my year two wrap-up. It's Tale of the Manticore by the Numbers. One, one, original game published. One, one, original class posted to the blog. Two, two, original game demonstration playthroughs. Two, two, monster mods posted to the blog. Five, five, brief diegetic songs performed. Seven, seven, story so far, bonus episodes. Eight, eight, magical items found, and one of them stolen. Fourteen, fourteen, Maps posted to the blog. 18. 18. Pieces of listener-made character art posted to the blog. 21. 21, 21. Level ups earned. 26. 26, Combat sequences. 51. 51, Different cross-promotion partners. 52. 52, Guest voice actors voicing over 60 characters. 58, 58. Original short musical scores recorded. 61. 61. Vocabulary words for the Dwarvish language. 72. 72. Full episodes, including an episode zero. 100. 100. In-game days. 200 and counting. Blog posts. Plus, plus. Boatloads of Easter eggs referring mostly to OSR classics, but also to listeners' names, sometimes rearranged into anagrams, sometimes hidden in plain sight. More love, drive, and passion to turn this story into something special than ever before. And one massive thank you to you, the listener. Well, that's enough celebrating. We've got a dragon to kill. Until next time, Mazgar defend you.